Well, good morning, Lindsley Avenue. Good morning. It's good to see everyone here this morning. It's good to have some visitors. Good to have some familiar faces back as well. We're really glad you're here and hope you'll come back each and every opportunity that you have. I want to take a few minutes this morning to talk about, if you will, the other side of what we talked about last week. We talked about worship last week from the standpoint of what we are supposed to get out of it, what we should leave with after having been together and gathering together to worship God. And the real focus of that came from the passage in Hebrews chapter 10 last week that is often used uh, many times to you know, kind of whoop up on people, if you will, uh, for not being together in worship services. <coughs> it's always been my uh, belief that when you look at the real meaning of that passage from toward the end of Hebrews chapter 10, the reason we should not forsake the assembling of ourselves together is because we do not benefit from being stirred up to love and good works. That's the real reason. And if we don't gather together, we are not stirred up to love and good works, and that makes it much more likely that we will sin willfully. I believe that is very, very strongly believe that is the real message from Hebrews chapter 10, despite the fact that I've heard it discussed the other way quite a few times in my life. But the important part of worship is what I want to look at today. You know, sometimes we'll hear people say, I just didn't get anything out of worship. Well, shame on us, because when we gather together like this, we should stir each other up to love and good works. That's what's supposed to come out of worship for you and me. The reason we are here, however, is to worship God. And so this morning, I just want to look at what the New Testament says about worshiping God, why we do it, who it's aimed toward, who it's for, and what the early Christians did, what the New Testament says they did, and see what worship is supposed to all be about. So take a look with me. It may not run maybe as long as some of them. There's always hope springs eternal that Gene will not go on for a whole lot of extra words, but uh, as Phil uh, laughing there, he knows from class experience that otherwise that doesn't always happen. I'm going to do my best. So here we go. In terms of worship, let's talk about a definition. What do we mean by worship? I mean, we're here. We may even have known we were coming together for worship. Signs in front of church buildings will often say worship service. Uh, but what does it really mean? Well, it really means the reverent love and devotion given to God. Love and devotion, I think we all understand. You know, you're showing love for someone or something. You're showing devotion in terms of being dedicated and reverent is the other aspect of it. When we are in the presence as we are here, but really as we are every day during our life, but gathered here to focus on God, this love and devotion toward God needs to have reverence associated with it. We are in the presence of the one who created the universe, called the universe into existence. We are in the presence of the one that called me into existence, who sees everything. Nothing can be hidden from God. You can't hide from God. Therefore, I need to come together to offer this love and devotion to God with the knowledge of just how small I really am in comparison to that incredible creator of the universe, reverent 
love and devotion offered to God. Ardent devotion, even adoration. We adore God, what he did for us, the fact that he loved us when we were unlovable. The focus is on God. Now that gives away the slide after this, but I'm not quite ready for that yet. What we don't have in this uh, definition, and it really is not in a definition of worship at all, is anything related really to entertainment. Uh, when you think about worship, we already talked about last week what we are supposed to get out of it. And that's not from what we looked at last week, you know, having had a fun time so much or, you know, wow, that was the funniest thing I've heard in forever or, or what we think of as entertainment. What we get, what we get out of worship is supposed to be to be stirred up to love one another, to love God, and to be stirred up to do good things for people during the week. That's what we are to get out of worship. I think I'm a, I really, unfortunately, believe so many people will come to a worship service today someplace and be expecting to get out of worship some form of entertainment. That's not what we saw last week in Hebrews chapter 10. It's not what you'll see anywhere in the New Testament. Now, hopefully, right, you won't come to a worship service and be bored so badly you fall out of the pew. You know, the, the message delivered or the songs, this is not the case with Evan, but the songs being so off pitch or so bad, you're like, ah. you don't want to have pain and suffering when you're together, gathered together for worship. But the point of it is to focus love and devotion to God and to stir each other up, to encourage one another every week to live a better life this next week, to love our neighbors more, and to focus on who we are supposed to be as God's children. That's the purpose of worship. This morning we're going to look at the focus on God part of worship. Who are we supposed to worship? Who are we supposed to worship? We saw that when Jeff read it earlier today. In Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is going through what's often called the temptation. He is tempted by Satan and really... An attempt by Satan, I might even think of a last-ditch effort somehow, uh, to turn Jesus around and to, to kind of spoil God's plan for what Jesus came to do. It was doomed to fail from the beginning, but Jesus, as a human being, was tempted in all the different ways that we are tempted, yet without sin, the book of Hebrews tells us. So when Jesus has been tempted and tempted and tempted by Satan three different times, Here's what he says to him. Essentially, get out of here, Satan. Go, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Satan had said, I'm going to give you all these things if you will just fall down and worship me. Jesus' response is, Satan, worship is only for God. Worship is only for God. We are only to serve God. So whom is worship for? It is for God. How? How do we worship God? And this is going to take up a good bit of this morning. What does the New Testament show people did when they were worshiping God? Notice, first of all, they did it collectively. They did it together. We talked some about that last week. We need to meet together in order to stir up one another to love and good works. There's a reason we gather together. 
But look at 1 Corinthians 11, 17 through 18 here on the screen. But in enjoining this and telling you this, Paul says, I do not praise you because you come together not for the better, but come together for the worse. So think about that right there for just a moment. Last week, Hebrews chapter 10, we talked about how we needed to not forsake the gathering of ourselves together, not forsake the assembling of ourselves together because when we're not here, we are not encouraged and we are not stirred up for love and good works. That really is all of last week, that little phrasing. But that's not apparently what was happening here in Corinth. Paul says, when you come together, it's not for the better, it's for the worse. When you come together, it's not where you encourage one another. It's not where you stir one another up for love and good works. Apparently, it was worse. In that case, you might have been better off not assembling together if it's going to be worse than if you didn't come at all. So what's the problem that was going on in Corinth? Look what he says. For first of all, when you come together in the church, I hear there are divisions among you. We can't be the family of God if we are separated by divisions, by one party over here, one group over here, and another group there, and another group here. You can't do it. And notice the phrasing, when you come together in the church, I've always kind of laughed to myself on that because Paul is repeating himself there. The word church means assembly. It means the group that has been called out from the way they used to live. So Paul's repeating himself. When you come together in the assembly, well, coming together means you've assembled, but he's focusing on the fact that we need to get together. This assembly that we are in today, this gathering together, is what we are supposed to do. The last thing you're supposed to have is divisions among us. So, first of all, how are we to worship God? Together. Does that mean you cannot worship God this afternoon? You cannot sing a, a song to God? You cannot pray to God? You cannot do anything? Absolutely not. But part of what we need to be doing when we worship God is to be together. And thanks to all of you for doing just that here this morning. Collective worship together is important for all the reasons we talked about last week. And that's also how we're supposed to worship God when we gather together. When we gather together, when we come together in the church, what are some of the things we're supposed to be doing that are this expressing of love and devotion to God? Well, the next several slides will point out things mentioned in the New Testament that they were doing as part of their worship. Take a look here with me. Again, in 1 Corinthians 14, 15, Paul says, I will pray with the spirit. I will also pray with the mind. I will sing with the spirit and I will also sing with the mind. What does he mean? I believe what he's meaning here is he's not simply going to mumble words because he memorized them as a child. You know, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. There's not a lot of spirit if I'm doing it that way, is there? And I'm not saying whether we can all sing like birds or not, but we should be singing with the spirit. It should be coming from the heart. When we are expressing our singing, whatever it sounds like, not only do we None of us care what it sounds like. God doesn't care what it sounds like. He cares for the fact that it's coming from the Spirit. 
coming from your heart. Nowhere in the Bible does God praise the singing because it's beautiful. The act of singing is beautiful, but there's no distinction made between someone that sounds like a frog when they're singing and someone that sounds the way we would imagine an angel would sound when they're singing. It's not there. The key is to sing from the heart, sing with your spirit, from the real inner you, and also to pray and to sing with the mind, praying and singing. You know, if I'm singing with the spirit, but I'm not thinking about what I'm doing, I'm not really focusing on, is what I'm expressing true? Is it, is it correct? Is it, is it real? It's got to be both. It's got to be from the heart and the head. And that's true for singing at the end of this verse. It's also true with praying. Sometimes when you get little kids up to pray for the first time publicly, it turns out to be in almost a series of the greatest hits that they've heard from other people praying. And shame on us as adults for repeating things over and over again where the kids would learn that. But they're first of all scared to death to be up, but it's just a quick run through. Well. That's necessary. You can't grow without doing some things for the first time and the second time. But you need to pray with the Spirit. When we pray to God, whether individually or when we're gathered together, it needs to come from in here. If there's something on the heart of the person leading the prayer, or we know there's something on the heart of some of someone or some people who are gathered together, it's okay to be emotional in a prayer to God. God knows what you're thinking anyway. He knows what the problem is anyway that you're experiencing. It's got to come from the heart. That's what praying with the Spirit means. But it also needs to be up here. And I think some of that is the idea of, again, remember that praise and adoration is supposed to be reverent? Words that show I understand when I am speaking to God in a prayer that He created the universe and I'm this little speck on a little speck. Reverence is this idea of, you know, you shouldn't show more reverence to the president of the United States or the governor if they were to walk up than you would show to God. We are speaking to the one who called us into existence and one day we'll call the universe out of existence. We need to be aware of where we are and what we're doing. Pray with the Spirit. Pray with the mind, sing with the spirit, and sing with the mind. Another thing that they did in the first century when they would gather together, remember when you come together, is they would read portions of the New Testament. And also we know later portions of the Old Testament as well. This is at the very end of the book of the Colossians. That's a letter Paul wrote to the church in Colossae. It's in modern day Turkey. Paul says to them, when this letter is read before you, stop right there. This letter of Colossians that's in our New Testament, Paul expected the church in Colossae, when they came together, remember they assembled together, that they would read some of the things he had written to them. Reading from the Bible, which is, by the way, what we're doing here with this on the screen, we're reading from the Bible, should be part of our worship. Why? God's message to us is contained in that Bible. And so when we read, we are looking for things God is telling us that God wants us to do or God wants us to know. And so in this first century, roughly 60 AD, long time ago now, 
when this letter is read before you, cause that it also be read in the church of the Laodiceans. That was about as far away from uh, Colossae as Franklin is from Nashville. It was a neighboring town. And apparently also that you read the letter of Laodicea. There were some letters. Swap them around so that you can read what I said to them and that they can read what I said to you. That's why we focus on the text. We focus on the Bible. They did it then. We do it today. Another thing that we do, which we will do here shortly after the message today, is described in 1 Corinthians 16. He says, concerning the collection for the saints, as I charge the churches of Galatia, so also you do. On the first day of the week, let each of you put by himself, essentially store something away, contribute something. He goes on to say, so that there's no gatherings while I come. He doesn't mean hiding it under your pillow, right? Every Sunday, first of all, why not put it under your pillow if that's what he meant on Friday afternoon? The time on the first day of the week is when they came together. So when you come together, each of you put something away, contribute something, so that when Paul came in to take that money under this circumstance to the people in Judea, people wouldn't have to scramble to go get it. We contribute here in these little baskets so that when there's a need here at Lindsley Avenue, they don't have to say, hey, Gene, can you run $20 over here because we need to do something? Hey, Jimmy, can you bring $25 over? How much trouble would that be every time you had to have something? Paul says, that, that's half crazy. Don't do that. On the first day of the week, when you get together, we know they got together, when you're together to stir yourselves up for love and good works, put something aside, contribute something, so that, not that Paul can come get it, but so that when the congregation has a need, it has funds to help. It has funds to do the nativity scene that we did Friday night. It has funds to help out with the children so they can understand people love them. There are reasons why we give. They gave in the first century, 1 Corinthians 16. We do the same. In the first century, Acts chapter 20, verse 7, also says they did this when they gathered together. If you look, it says on the first day of the week. Remember, they gathered together on the first day of the week. That's when Christians assemble on Sundays. On the first day of the week when the disciples had gathered together in order to break bread, being about to depart on the morrow, Paul preached, and the word there is reason, he reasoned with them, and, uh, reasoned to them and continued his speech until midnight. First of all, everybody relax, I am not going on until midnight. They did it in the first century, but I don't have any plans to do that. But two things are mentioned here. First of all, he reasoned with them. He spoke to them. He preached to them using words from the Old Testament, using the message from God and discussing. I, I, I assume here trying to convince them to love one another and to be active in good works and to love God. It's fairly basic. It really is. When they gathered together, there was preaching. Hopefully that's what I'm attempting to do here this morning. Reasoning back and forth. And look at the first part of this. It says, when they had gathered together in order to break bread. The language there is, for the purpose of breaking bread. The reason they got together was to do this breaking bread. In English, that's a little hard to understand what breaking bread means. When you dig into it even just a little bit, and what people, Christians, uh, teachers throughout the thousands of years now that we've been here, 
They all understand this means to partake of the Lord's Supper right here. The language breaking bread is not taking a loaf of bread and having some jam to put on it and as we all eat lunch together. That's not what we're talking about here. The language here is about the Lord's Supper. When they had gathered together to focus on the death of Jesus, to focus on what Jesus had done for them, and to commit their lives to living for him once they left. That's why they got together. That's why we're going to do it here in a few minutes. Another thing that they did, Paul in Ephesians 5 says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. When they got together, when they had assembled together, they would sing. And the things that they sang were hymns, psalms and hymns. Many of those were addressed to God. You sing to God expressing our love and devotion to God. Many of our songs and hymns do just that. Guide me, O thou great Jehovah. Please, God, guide me. Be with me. But there are also things here where they were singing to each other. Some of the songs that we sing are designed to encourage one another and to stir us up to love and good works. So there's a mixture of songs as we are speaking and singing together without regard to what we may sound like, where we are showing our love to God and our love and encouragement to each other. Paul here to the church, the congregation at Ephesus told them to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your heart, making melody in your heart to the Lord, and giving thanks. That's what we should do when we are gathered together as well. So when we're thinking about worship, what did they do in the first century? Well, look, they prayed together when they assembled. They read scripture. That's what reading the letter to Colossae and the letter to Laodicea was all about. They gave so that there would be funds available for needs. They broke bread. They partook of the Lord's Supper. They had preaching and teaching. They were singing. When you look at it, that is exactly what we do here each and every Sunday. We do today what was done 2,000 years ago because that's what we are to do when we gather together to worship God. Worshiping God involves all of these things as another benefit of worshiping and being together, we stir each other up. Why do we get together? Why is it so important not to miss being together and gathering together like we are here this morning? Because we are not able to express that love and devotion to God together when we are absent and because we are not stirred up to love and good works. That's the reason why we should assemble together. And I'm so glad all of you have here this morning. Now, a couple of other things that I will add to that. There are some things that some of our, uh, <coughs> that might could be done in a worship service that aren't listed here. Why? Why don't we do those? Um, well, I'm going to use an example. Those of us that have had a mother, presumably we all have, may remember, especially if mom was going somewhere for a while, mom would usually give a short series of, of direction.
do not you know, beat up on your brother, do not do this, do not do that, right? It was almost always not an exhaustive list. You come home and, and instead of beating up on your brother, you beat up on the cat or you burned uh, the chair. Or did, If you did that and your mom comes home, why did you burn the chair? Well, what response would you give? Well, you didn't tell me not to burn the chair. Would that work, Jimmy? Would that work for you? No. No. Well, think about it for a moment. If your mom was leaving, how long would it take her to tell you every possible thing you could ever do that she doesn't want you to do? She would never leave. Right? I mean, it could take 20 hours to say, all right, do not hit the cat at 9 a.m. Do not hit the cat at two seconds after 9 a.m. Do not hit the cat at five seconds after 9 a.m. And that's just talking about the cat. Well, the Bible that we have, throw hold your Bible up for me just for a moment. That's a pretty, that's a relatively thick Bible. There's a lot of stuff in there. How big would it have to be if God had told us every single thing you should never do? I don't think this whole building would hold it. It would probably bury Nashville under paper. We know you cannot specify everything you don't do. And that's why God gave us broad things of what not to do. And we specifically pay attention to the positive things we are asked to do. God didn't say I couldn't do this as part of worship. Well, yeah, I mean, how big would it have to be to say all the things not to do when we gather together to worship? What God did do is he showed us and told us the things that we should do during worship. And that's why we focus on doing these things right here. Now, I want to look, as I've done before a little bit, with what some of the early Christians after the New Testament said about worship and what they recorded that they did. These are not apostles. These are not inspired. This is not part of the Bible. But if 50 years after the time of the Bible, I can see what the Christians were doing, that kind of lets me know, am I on track? Or was I, mis was I misreading what I had seen in the Bible? I always like to do this. So let's just look at what some of these people said. First of all, and on the day called Sunday, all who live in cities or in the country gathered together in one place. Stop right there for a moment. They gathered together on Sunday. So we... So that need to gather together is something they understood as well 50 or 60 years after the time of the Apostle John. When they gathered together, what did they do? And the memoirs of the apostles and the writings of the prophets are read as long as time permits. And we are exhorted to imitate these good things. The memoirs of the apostles are things that we have in our Bible. The letter to the Romans, the letter to Corinth the letter to uh, 1 Timothy and stuff like that, the things that the apostles wrote, or the writings of the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah. They read from the scripture, the text, the Bible, as we have it today. As long as time permits, they spent a lot of time reading from the Bible, by the way. And we are exhorted to imitate these things. What that's describing is somebody in my kind of situation here urging all of us to do what we just read. They had preaching. They had reasoning going on. What else? Then we all rise together and pray. There's prayer, 150 AD. 
When our prayer is ended, bread and wine and water are brought. And uh, what that's talking about is bringing the Lord's Supper. They did not have Welch's grape juice back then in the first century. Mr. Welch, if there was a Mr. Welch, had not been born yet. And so the wine and the water were to water it down so that no one would drink any of the fruit of the vine and have some kind of big pop of an alcohol problem. They watered down what they had so that it wouldn't cause a problem with anyone. So you had essentially fruit of the vine, bread and water, and you had uh, the wine and water, sorry about that, and you had the bread. They partook of the Lord's Supper right there. Then prayers and thanksgiving are offered and the people assent by saying amen. Have you ever been in a worship service where the preacher says, and the congregation said, and everybody says amen? That's what they did. Perfectly fine to do that. It is then distributed. What is it? The Lord's Supper. It is then distributed to everyone and a portion is sent by the deacons to those who are absent. Some people, some congregations, even today, have where they will take the Lord's Supper to somebody who is sick, couldn't make it. Or in this case, somebody could have been a slave and not able to get away and assemble together. They took the Lord's Supper so that they could worship God and remember what Jesus did for them. Writing in 160 AD, I don't see a whole lot of difference between what Justin Martyr here just described and what we do here and what we saw in the Bible. Here's another one. Uh, this is a writer about 200 AD. He's referring to a Roman historian, Pliny. Pliny, the Roman historian, found in the early Christian services nothing but meetings at early morning for singing hymns to Christ and God and sealing home their way of life by a united pledge to be faithful to their religion forbidding murder, adultery, dishonesty, and other crimes. A big summary here, but they met early on Sunday morning and they sang songs to God and to Jesus and they sealed their way, their home, their way of life by we will live for God and we'll love our neighbor. That's really what it's talking about right there. Here's another one. In the reading of scriptures, in the chanting of songs, in the preaching of sermons, and in the offering up of prayers. He's talking about what they did when they gathered together. What's this chanting of songs? Well, four-part harmony hasn't been around very long. Early singing was chanting, where you were pretty much saying the same thing. We could do that here if we wanted. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter how you sing. Unison, harmony, whatever it is, they sang. Same thing we do here. One more. These Christians asserted that the sum and substance of their fault or error, these are Christians being investigated by the Romans. Why are you Christians? What are you doing? This isn't worshiping the emperor. What are you doing? Was that they were accustomed to meet on a fixed day before dawn and sing responsibly a hymn to Christ as to a God and to bind themselves by an oath, not to some crime, but not to commit fraud, theft, or adultery, nor falsify their trust, nor refuse to return a trust when called upon to do so. When this was over, it was their custom to depart and to assemble again to partake of food, but ordinary and innocent food. This is that report the Roman historian made about when he investigated, what are the Christians up to? Just like we saw, they gathered together, they sang, they bound themselves to live for God and to love one another. What else is involved in our worship to God? This is a big one. Sometimes it's not... It's left out when we're talking about worship. Look with me here. Romans 12, 1 through 2. 
Paul here says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable God, which is your to God, which is your spiritual worship. Look, a big part of what it means to worship God is not merely singing, is not merely praying. It is to give your life, your body, your soul, and your spirit to God. When we talk about living for God, it does you absolutely no good to be here and to be singing, to be praying, to be reading. And when you walk out this door, you live as if God isn't real. Paul here says he's appealing, he's urging them to present your bodies to God, not as a dead sacrifice that's burned up on an altar, but as a living sacrifice because I am going to live for God I am not going to live for myself. And notice he calls this your spiritual worship. When you are living for God, when I am living for God, when I am loving my neighbor, everything I do in my life is offering that sacrifice to God and showing God, I honor you, I have adoration for you, I am reverent to you as the one who made me. When we gather together, we do certain things, when we leave being together, we continue to worship God, if you will, by offering our lives to him as a spiritual sacrifice. So in the New Testament, worship involves singing, reading, praying, preaching, giving. Our worship should too. The focus is on God. It really isn't on me. We get a lot out of it by encouraging one another and stirring one another up to love and good works. Don't forget that, but that was last week. We're talking about what our focus should be, which is on God question this morning, where is our focus? Where's my focus? Have I been sitting here wondering, what am I going to have for lunch today? Have I been sitting here wondering, wonder who's going to win the ball game? If our focus is not on God, then we don't have any focus. We really don't. We gather together here at Lindsley Avenue. People gather together in all sorts of places around town. As we said last week, stir one another up encourage one another, but to focus on showing our love and adoration to God through these activities that we saw in the New Testament that we do right here. Worship also involves giving ourselves to God. Have we? Have we? As Evan's going to come up here and lead a song here in just a moment, that's the question for each of us today. If you're a member of God's family, but you just haven't really thought about God much in the last week. You were here last Sunday, or it's been several Sundays since you gathered together, and no one could really tell you were a member of God's family. Today's the day to make the change and to say, I want people to see my life as a sacrifice for God Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. That would involve coming and saying, I need to get back on track, and we're happy to pray for you. If you're not yet a member of God's family, this is the time to say, I want to quit living for myself and I want to live for God. To turn your life around, the about face, the repenting as it's called, and, well, not today in this water, it's still 40 degrees, but to be buried in baptism, to show dying to yourself, and just as Jesus was raised up by God, we, you too can be raised up to be a totally different person. Have we given ourselves to God? That's our question for the morning as we stand and sing.